All right, while everybody is uh, getting their seats, uh, let me go over the announcement. Just a reminder that on October the 19th, we're going to have our, um, what is it if it's once every three or four years? <laughs> our semi-annual rainout at Orlando Salas's out in Patterson, and there are food sign-up sheets and maps out in the fellowship area back past the kitchen. Also, if you have aren't getting church emails related to uh, cancellation of classes, then uh, you need to sign up for the church email for announcements, and um, you can find information about that in the bulletin under subscribe to our email list and follow those directions. Of course, if you don't look at your email, then it doesn't matter whether you get your email warning or not. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be shaken. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're walking by means of the Spirit, that you are trusting in the Lord, that you have no unconfessed sin, and if necessary, during silent prayer, you can confess sin and make sure that you are forgiven and restored to uh, fellowship, which you can Uh, enjoy as we walk together by the Spirit this evening. Let's uh, bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're just thankful for another day, another day to serve you, another day to learn about you, another day to study your word, Another day to represent you on this earth as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful that you have given us such a privilege to be able to serve you in this way. And yet so often we let ourselves get distracted by all the details of life, all the different things we have to do, little responsibilities here and there. and We forget what a high calling we have in Christ to represent you here on the earth. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study this evening, help us to understand, perhaps clarify in our minds even more what it means to uh, confess sin, what it means to be forgiven, and of your grace and your goodness to us whenever we do confess, no matter how frequently we commit the same sins, no matter how frequently we confess the same sins, that your grace always meets us where we are, forgives us, and restores us to our fellowship, and strengthens us in our spiritual growth. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, this evening we're back in Second Samuel chapter 12. I want to do three things this evening as we uh, study here in this section and then move on to uh, the next uh, the next section. You know, I got these new glasses. They do not work. 
we'll go back for a third time to see if they can adjust them so that I can see you and read my notes. All right. Sin, confession, and cleansing. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 13, and then I hope we'll have time to get into Psalm 51. The three things I want to try to cover this evening are a review of Nathan's confrontation with David and David's response. And that's in Psalm, I mean, excuse me, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 9 down to about 13. Then the next thing we're going to look at is the relationship of Psalm 51 to David's confession in 2 Samuel chapter 12, just to understand what is going on there. And then third, we're going to begin Psalm 51 when David cries out to God for forgiveness for his sin. The main thing that we learn in Psalm 51 is that no matter how horrible the sin, no matter how vile, no matter how disgusting, no matter how obnoxious, no matter how offensive it is to everybody around us, uh, whether it is an act or whether it is something we say or whether it is just, um, just our thinking, the believer can admit or acknowledge sin to God and instantly he forgives us and cleanses us completely. And we are restored to fellowship. We don't have to convince him of our sincerity. We don't have to show a certain amount of remorse. We do nothing except what the scripture says, and that is to admit, to acknowledge our sin, what we have done. And the result is that God constantly forgives us because he knows how frail we are. He understands the problems of our sin nature better than you or I ever will. And he instantly restores us to that, to that fellowship. And one of the great passages to understand that is the one we're in in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses uh, primarily we're going to look at 7 through, uh, 7 through 12, but we'll look at a few other passages as we, as we go forward. So we're going to begin by looking at this section in verses 7 to 13, and it, for a little background, we're going to go to 2 Samuel uh, 12, 5. Looking at 2 Samuel 12, 5, we're just getting a bit of the, of the background as to what had happened. I want to remind you that Nathan had confronted David after his sin with Bathsheba and after the murder of Uriah, and he confronts David by means of a parable. Now remember, Nathan is a prophet. A prophet is a representative of God. A prophet speaks to the people for God. And a priest speaks to God for the people. Okay, so it's two directions of communication. The prophet represents God to the people, and a priest represents the people, uh, the people to God. And so... After he goes through this parable where he talks about a wealthy man and a very poor man, the very poor man has one you, one lamb that is his, he loves this lamb, treats the lamb like a daughter, but the wealthy man has all kinds of flocks and herds, he has more than enough, and 
a visitor comes to visit him, and so rather than uh, slaughtering and butchering one of his own, he goes over and steals the little lamb from his neighbor. And so David becomes incensed. Now David's out of fellowship. So David at this point is just, uh, he had just, his arrogance balloon has just become highly inflated when he gets the opportunity to say what should happen to this to this man and his anger. So first of all, we know he's still out of fellowship. He's angry. It's not a righteous anger. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, notice even when we're out of fellowship, we like to cloak whatever it is we do under the guise of being scripturally correct. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. So at this point, David has an overreaction to the crime. This often happens. Uh, to steal an animal from someone else is not a capital offense. This is not something worthy of death. So he reacts emotionally. He reacts in anger. I know that's never happened to anybody here. That We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about how little things happen. They set us off and we get angry and we say all kinds of things that are way beyond the pale. Uh, so that's all part of the sin complex as David is, is out of fellowship and as David is just living in light of his own arrogance and satisfying his own selfish desires. And so he announces this penalty that he shall restore fourfold to the lamb because he did this thing and because he has no pity. Now, in the law of Moses, in the Torah, Scripture is very clear what crimes invoke the death penalty. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, we read that the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, that's the difference between adultery and fornication. Fornication, neither of the two people involved are married, and they're not married to each other. In adultery... They are at least one of the two parties is married to someone else. So the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, which is a violation of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, the adulterer and the adulteress. So that would involve both David and Bathsheba. Both are guilty of this. They shall surely be put to death. So it's a death penalty offense. It's a capital crime. It's not just a sin. Then you shall bring them both out to the gates of the city, Deuteronomy 22:24, and you shall stone them to death with stones. So this is a capital, uh, a capital offense. In Numbers 35, 16 through 18, in fact, much of that chapter is dedicated to different uh, penalties for crimes. But if he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely be put to death. The, in the Old Testament, the mandate for the death penalty goes back to Genesis 9-6. It's part of the covenant God made with Noah after the flood. And God made this covenant with Noah, and the sign of that covenant was the rainbow. So I don't know if there was a rainbow before the flood. I don't think so. That's what makes it unique. And the rainbow is a sign that God will never again destroy the earth by water. 
That's one part of it. People don't read it very deeply. The other parts of the covenant is that human beings were now authorized to eat meat. So that means that when you see a rainbow, you ought to go have a good primary. Did you read the news this morning? Some of you did. You know what I'm talking about? So a new study has come out that said it's fine to eat pork and beef. This is not going to be harmful at all. That Don't you know that really irritated all of the uh, uh, anthropogenic global warming crowd because they want us to all become vegetarians and they want to do away with all of the cattle. I guess they want to have a huge slaughter and one last big barbecue. I don't know how they're going to get rid of all the cattle. But anyway, they don't make much sense uh, anyhow. But, uh, but now, contrary to everything we've heard for the last 20 or 30 years, a new study has come out that says... It's just fine. There's no difference whether you eat pork and beef or not. Just think, science is so brilliant that in the last 10 years or so, they have turned around on so many things, and they tell us that we can eat butter and we can have steak and we can uh, actually eat a number, number of other things. For a while there, we couldn't have caffeine. Most people didn't care, and then we were told it was okay to have caffeine. And we think they can tell us actually how the earth was, came into existence, how the universe came into existence billions and billions of years ago, and they can't even tell us whether it's okay to eat beef. Who knows what it will be in another 10 years? So science uh, holds all of their conclusions with some degree of, of, of doubt. So uh, anyway... Murder is a capital offense, and God authorized that in the Noahic Covenant. As long as we see rainbows, we are supposed to be executing certain classes of criminals, and murder is the primary one. And everybody gets confused, and they say, well, it really doesn't deter crime. That's because we don't do it right. It should be quick. It should be timely. There should be proper adjudication, but don't wait 10, 12, 15 years and uh, cost the state an enormous amount of money in the process. It should be quick. I think it should be done within a year so that people associate the fact that they're being executed with what they did. And, but the Bible doesn't say that's the reason we have capital punishment. It never states that it's a deterrent. It states that it is... A, a, an attack on God because any every human being is created in the image and likeness of God and when another human being is killed we are attacking the image of God it is an act of blasphemy in the highest order and that is why we are to execute criminals it has nothing to do with deterrence or any of the other reasons that people come up with but if there is no God, then we are not in the image of God. We're just an accidental blob of protoplasm that somehow got energized by a lightning flash. And, and we could all go away tomorrow, so let's not take anyone's life. Everything goes back to your view of God. And that is so important. If, if the Bible is true, then everything else must be, be true that it, that it relates to. If there is a God like the Bible says then he is important. But if there is no God, then there's nothing really that's important. Everything is just up to us to determine what we're going to do. 
So we have these clear death penalty statements here. And David is guilty not only of a sin, but he is guilty of a crime. And so he is, he and Bathsheba both should be, according to the Noahic covenant and according to the law of Moses, they should be uh, executed. And so this is obviously going to weigh very heavily upon the Lord. Now, the word that is used here for murderer is the participial form of the verb ratzach. There's about six or seven different words in the Hebrew that relate to taking life. Some of them are general. We'll see a couple of them a little later on, and they may or may not involve criminality, but ratzach refers to murder. And that is the word that is used in the Ten Commandments. It's not thou shalt not kill, it is thou shalt not murder. So then we have Nathan identifying David as the man in the parable. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're the one who's done this. You are the one who has... Uh, seven wives, and you go and steal some other man's wife. You are the one who seduced her. You're the one who abused your power. You are the one who stole a wife from another man, and you are guilty. And this is God's announcement. See, he speaks for God. He says, thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel. And this is really interesting here. He is going to go through a list of the things that God has done for David. He's going to remind David of all that God, that God has done for him. God is reminding him of this. He reminds him that God reminds him that he made him the king over Israel, that God rescued him from all of the attacks of Saul. God gave him the wives and possessions of Saul for his keeping. He is uh, the caretaker of those wives and those possessions and gave him the rulership over the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's what's mentioned in verses 7 and 8. Do you notice anything that's missing? That's always a fun trick question. There's no mention of the Davidic covenant. That's another indication that the covenant hasn't been given yet that we went over this when we studied the Davidic covenant, that, that it likely came towards the end of David's life, not at the beginning, because the way the book is laid out, the writer is giving all the good things about David at the very beginning until we hit chapter, chapter 10, and then, then it shifted. So this is, um, this is the confrontation here, and why does God do this? What is going on here? God is reminding David that David is the creature, that God is the creator, that David may be king, but he rules at the behest of God. God is the one that made him king. God is, in fact, the king of the universe, that David is not to abuse his power because he only has been given that power from God to serve God with. And so the abuse of power is, in a secondary sense, an attack 
on God. It is just very similar to what we see, what I just mentioned a minute ago in Genesis 9-6, that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And so it is an assault on the image of God, of Uriah, in having him murdered. It is a rebellious act against God, asserting David's own authority as being greater than God's. So his abuse of power is an affront to God, and God reminds David and us that as creatures, we are dependent on the creator. The very term creator is a term that implies creatures. It demonstrates that there is one who has control and sovereignty over the creation. It emphasizes that we, the creature, owe everything, everything that we have. There's not one thing that we have that came independently from God. All of the food we eat, all of the things that we have that we enjoy in our homes, our cars, Everything in our life is given to us by God. He created everything and made it available to us. And so we owe everything to God as the creator. Now, the essence of sin is that the creature wants to act independently of the creator. This is what happens with David. He is in arrogance and he thinks like Satan did that he can be independent of the creator. Sin blurs the line between the creator and the creature. Whenever we sin, what we're saying is, God, I'm independent of you. I'm completely independent of you. I'm in charge of my own life, not you. That is also a form of idolatry. So every sin, in some sense, is idolatrous because we're making ourselves to be the authority, to be on the same level or a higher authority than God as the creator. It blurs the line between creature and creator. And when we, when we sin and we create this idol of ourselves, then we begin to worship ourselves. So it's, it's all about us. And, and sin is all about fulfilling what we think are our needs, our desires, and that God just doesn't have a clue. So what we see here is that all sin is a violation of the creature, excuse me, all sin is a, is a violation of the creator-creature distinction. We see that in one of the words that's used for sin. One of the things we're going to see in the, the tonight, in the next couple of weeks, is there's a number of different words in the scripture that are used for sin, and they each emphasize uh, a, something different, a little different aspect uh, to sin. And the word that is translated transgression is a word that uh, probably has more of the meaning of a rebel, somebody who is turning against the one in charge. They are rebelling against God. And so that's the idea here is David has rebelled against God. And every time you and I sin, we are rebelling against God. Now, when we sit here in Bible class, we sit at home reading our Bible, we recognize that that's just the most idiotic, 
horrendous, inane thing that we could possibly do. And then five minutes later, our sin nature takes over, and we rebel against God again. Again and again, that is the heart of what sin is. Now, another interesting thing we'll get into tonight a little bit is when you think about sin, it's something a term that's familiar to everyone here. Anybody who goes to Bible class three times a week, anybody who listens to lessons online another three or four times during the week, anybody who's reading their Bible on a regular basis is going to have a certain familiarity with terms like sin and transgression and iniquity. This is just part of what we learn from the Bible. But it probably doesn't surprise you. These are not words that people on the street use. If you're working, people that you work with don't use those terms. And so that's something we need to be aware of when we're talking to those outside the body of Christ, uh, that we can define these terms in a way that they can understand. We start off using terms like sin and transgression and iniquity. They're just going to go right over their head, and maybe they'll even punch us out because they don't like being called a sinner because their idea of sin is really distorted. So we have to think about these things. So all sin is a violation of the creator-creature distinction. It is an act of rebellion against God. So we recognize that everything that we have in life was created by God for a purpose and that we are to use, use it the way God intended and not to violate that. So when we violate that in terms of uh, sexual sin, in terms of fornication, in terms of adultery, then what we are doing is we are redefining the standards according to our standards and not according to God's standards. We're making ourselves out to be God. We're doing the exact same thing that Satan did as he stated his five I wills in Isaiah uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. God gives us these mandates, these standards, because they provide freedom. Freedom is not anarchy. It's not being able to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. Freedom always has restrictions, and God has given us restrictions for our, our, our best use. And so we don't come along and redefine uh, those, those restrictions. They remind us that we are creatures. Now, not only is all sin a violation of the creator-creature distinction, but all sin is a violation of God's character. Now, that's another area where we have to be careful because often we'll define it in terms of God's righteousness or God's holiness and those two are terms that are very unfamiliar to the to the people who are not believers and and have just are just a product of, of our culture. So we have to use other terms. We could talk about righteousness simply as the standards of God's character, His moral ethical standards, and we can talk about it that way. And they can understand that their standards for everybody when they go to work, there are standards of behavior in their family to some degree. And so when we sin, what we're doing is we are falling short of those standards. We're breaking whatever rules there are 
that have set things set, set things up. Now, not only is uh, sin a violation of God's character, but we get another definition of sin in 1 John 3, verse 4. In 1 John 3, John says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin, by definition, is violating a set of standards. The set of standards are defined as law or regulations. Uh, These are the rules. These are the rules by which God expects us to live. He's designed those, those rules so that we can have happiness and we can have joy. And he's not just sitting up there in heaven trying to shut down all of our pleasure and all of our enjoyment in life, which is how an unbeliever thinks. So it's important to think about these things as we're communicating uh, to unbelievers because there's enough distortion and misinformation out there about what Christians believe so that most unbelievers are pretty confused and don't really have a clue or really have, have an idea. Now, David has acted against God's law. He has acted specifically against God's commandments in uh, the Mosaic law. And this is why uh, another reason it talks about committing uh, lawlessness. It violates those standards of God. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, we read Nathan's next statement. He says, or asks a question, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now, we'll just stop with that question. There's really two parts to it. The first asks the question, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? The second expands on it to include the idea of doing evil in God's sight. So this word despise is really a strong word. We never think about sin this way. We never think that when we sin, we are showing such disrespect to God. It's the Hebrew word baza, which means to despise or disdain or to hold someone in contempt. So what Nathan is asking is, why do you hold God in contempt or the commandment of the Lord in contempt? Now, the word there for commandment is not the word for commandment. It is the word of the Lord. It is davar, which is the word that I have on the right side of the screen, simply meaning the word of the Lord. Why have you held the word of the Lord in contempt? Now, what's interesting when we look at this is that in the scriptures, the Ten Commandments are described as the Ten Words, okay, the Ten Devarim. So this is an indication that what is at hand here is that David has violated two of the Ten Words, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's what is going to be spelled out in the next couple of verses. So we see this word for despise, and I want to give you a little sampling of how this is used in some other places in the Old Testament. 
that's used to describe Esau. Esau and Jacob are the twins. Esau and Jacob are uh, vying for the inheritance from their father. It should go to Esau because he was the firstborn chronologically. But one day he's out hunting, and he comes back, and he hasn't had a good day. He hasn't been able to kill anything, and he is tired, and he is starving to death. And his brother Jacob has just made a huge pot of red lentils. And so Esau wants to eat. And so he begs some food, and Jacob makes a deal with him, says, well, I'll give you something to eat if you will sell me your birthright. And so Esau sells him his birthright. The result is described in verse 34. And Jacob gave Esau bread and a stew of lentils, so he made good on his bargain. Esau ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He showed contempt for his inheritance, for his inheritance rights as the firstborn. Now, another passage is one we looked at pretty extensively when we were at the beginning of our study of 1 Samuel, and this is in the great psalm of Hannah as she's praising God for the fact that she's now pregnant and going to, she recognizes that she's going to give birth to a son who will have a role of some kind in bringing about the arrival of the Messiah. And so in 1 Samuel 2.30 as uh, uh, this is God talking in response at the end of that section. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. This is talking to Eli. I got the context mixed up. This is talking to Eli at the end of the chapter who is now in rebellion against God. And then the Lord says, but, for, but now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So he's talking here about uh, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are abusive priests. They, when women would come to the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice, they would bargain with them for sex. They were abusive they despised God. They held God in contempt. This is the kind of word that is being used to describe David's actions in his, in his sin. Another example is when Goliath looks out and sees this puny little Jewish boy in front of him and says he disdained him for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. He wasn't a warrior. And so Goliath had uh, contempt for David. It didn't last long. In Isaiah 49, verse 7, this is a passage where God is speaking about the coming servant, the Messiah. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One. To him, that is, to the servant, to him whom man despises. This is a general statement that human beings treat the Messiah, treat the Savior with contempt. To him whom man despises. Further in Isaiah 53, 3, where we read the passage, he is despised and rejected by men. 
talking about the, the coming Messiah, that he would be rejected and they would show him contempt, which is exactly what happened. The soldiers spit on him, they beat him, they flogged him. Here he is, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who's come to save them from their sins, and they treat him with such contempt. That is a picture of how God views our sin, that when we sin, we are despising God. We are showing contempt. Ezekiel sixteen fifty nine. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done who despise the oath by breaking the covenant. Now, this section is interesting in the end of chapter 16 and on into Ezekiel 17, God is indicting the uh, southern kingdom of Israel for their uh, failure to obey him, that they have broken their oath. And as a result of that, Nebuchadnezzar was going to bring the armies of Babylon down and would invade and that he would uh, conquer Jerusalem. And this is what happened in the attack of 597. He didn't destroy Jerusalem at that point, but he did carry uh, Jehoiakim, the king, otherwise known as Kaniah, other passages later on, because God uh, judged him and said no one from his line would sit on the throne. So Jesus could not have come from the line of Kaniah, came down another line, in the line from the line of David. And so it goes on that talking about how the king who followed him, which is Zedekiah, uh, whose oath he despised. He despises his oath because he's, and he's going to disobey God. God wanted um, uh, Zedekiah to uh, yield to Nebuchadnezzar because God was going to judge him. He kept telling the, the, the people in Judah, just surrender, just give up, and everything will be great for you. And they re- continued to rebel against God, and the result was that that they were, uh, many of them were killed. They went through this inc- horrible time of being overrun by the armies of the Babylonians because they thought that they could somehow defeat them. They just completely rejected God's, God's guidance, and they rebelled against him. So these are just some of the pictures that we have that when we sin, we are showing contempt for God. We're showing contempt for our Creator and contempt for uh, our Redeemer. So we read, as we go through the, the, the rest of the verse, <clears throat> it's an identification of what the sins are. Later on, when David confesses, he says, For I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't need to repeat or identify what the sins are. They were, they're just mentioned. He, he knows exactly what they are, and so does God. The indictment is, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be uh, your wife and killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, these are two other words for kill. They do not necessarily mean murder. They're just broader terms for slaying someone or smiting someone. The first one is the Hebrew word nakah, and the second one is the Hebrew word harag. They may or may not involve criminal activity, but they are summary terms 
for taking the life of someone. It may be in battle, may be another legitimate situation or an illegitimate uh, situation. Then the con- part of the consequences are laid out when we get to verse 10, where Nathan says, Now therefore, as a consequence of the fact that you violently had, you had uh, Uriah violently killed in the midst of battle, uh, your punishment, your discipline will entail this same kind of violent deaths. Uh, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. There's our word again. Uh, you have shown contempt to me and you have uh, taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So this is a prophecy that violent death will plague the house of David. The term the sword, sword represents a weapon of death. When Adam and Eve sinned, they are cast out of the garden, and God set up a a battalion of cherubs to surround the garden, each with a flaming sword, indicating that it would be a death penalty to break into Eden again. When you get to Romans chapter uh, chapter 13 talks about talks about that the government wields the sword. Okay, that's it, the power of death. It has the power to execute criminals and the power to engage in warfare. So the sword is often used as a representative of death and the power or authority to take uh, to take life. Now, what we're seeing here is not that aspect of it, but it does speak of death, and it's saying that the sword shall never, and this is the same Hebrew words that are used to talk about the eternity of various covenants. Now, olam does not always mean forever and ever without end. Sometimes it means for a very, very long time, uh, and that's what confuses people. And you have to determine context what it's talking about. So this is talking about the fact that the house of David, his children, his grandchildren, his descendants, will experience many violent deaths. And ultimately, this is fulfilled just as you have certain prophecies in the Davidic covenant related to uh, the future ruler and his rejection Here you have something similar that's uh, subtly implied here. The sword will never uh, depart from the house, and ultimately the son of David will also suffer the sword of execution from the Roman Empire, and yet he is the one who is taking and and completing uh, this prophecy in himself on the cross. When we look at the passage dealing with the sin of murder and the sin of adultery, these were intentional sins. In Leviticus, it talks about two categories of sins. There are unintentional sins, and unintentional sins have sacrifices. But if you commit a willful sin, if you commit an intentional sin, then there's no sacrifice. 
if you were a Jew, you had to wait until the next year on the Day of Atonement, which is coming up next week, next Tuesday, I believe, is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that is when your sin would be graciously uh, forgiven. So in Leviticus 4.22 and 23, we have a couple of verses that indicate this. When a ruler has sinned, so that applies to David, and done something unintentionally. So this does, does not apply. David's a ruler, but he commits an intentional sin. And if you commit, a, um, if you commit an unintentional sin, or if your sin comes to his knowledge, if he's made aware of it, oh, I didn't know that was a sin, then there was a sacrifice. And these are some other passages that talk about the uh, unintentional sins in Leviticus 4.2, 4.13, 4.22, and 4.27. In the first uh, six chapters of Leviticus, there's a lot mentioned about these unintentional sins. Also in 5.15 and 5.18 and in 22.14. Then in Numbers, it's mentioned twice, in Numbers 15.22 to 28 and Numbers 35 to 23 along with Deuteronomy 4.42 and 19.4. So in verse 10, God says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have had great contempt for me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I'm going to skip the next couple of verses because we looked at them last time. I'm just focusing on David's response to this confrontation. He's been identified as the sinner. His sin is now out in the open, and God has uh, confronted him with his sin. And this is David's response. David responds in humility. He doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't say, um, he doesn't make any excuses. He faces it straight up. And he makes this confession. Now, we're not told a lot about what has happened before, but we know time has gone by. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Some time went by before she knew she was pregnant. During that time was the time when Uriah was killed in battle. So there's been a period of, let's say, a month at least, probably two months, three months, for Bathsheba to know that she has uh, become pregnant. And in that time, this sin has weighed heavily on David. He has fought it. He doesn't want to face it. He doesn't want to own up to it. But we know that it weighed heavily on him when we look at Psalm 32. Now, in the next couple of weeks, starting tonight, we're going to look at the prayer for forgiveness in Psalm 51. That's what Psalm 51 is. It's a prayer for forgiveness. He doesn't realize that forgiveness in Psalm 51. He doesn't get uh, talk about the forgiveness. The forgiveness is the focus of Psalm 32. But at the opening of Psalm 32, David writes, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. So he's compounding his misery day after day 
between the time of the death of Uriah and the time that Nathan confronts him. And he is trying to suppress this. He doesn't want to admit to it. He doesn't want to accept it. So by the time Nathan confronts him, he owns up to it and he confesses his sin. He shows that he is turning from his arrogance and his uh, self-centeredness and he is submitting to God in humility. In verse 4, he goes on to say, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So he knew that God was dealing with him, and he knew that he had sinned, that it was an egregious sin. He knew that from the beginning because he tried to cover it up, and that's why he had Uriah killed. And he says, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He's just absolutely miserable. It, it, it consumes him. He expresses it, it, expresses it physically. His muscles hurt. His joints ached. He was uh, exhausted by it. He probably could not sleep at night. And then in verse 5, he says, <clears throat> I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote Psalm 32, but it was some time after he had confessed his sin to Nathan. He confesses his sin to Nathan because Nathan is the representative of God as a prophet. Admitting his sin to Nathan as a prophet is the same as admitting his sin to God. And so when he says, uh, will make his statement that I have sinned against God, Nathan can take that, and Nathan then gets a word from the Lord, which he communicates to David, announcing his that God has forgiven him. That's when the confession and the forgiveness took place was at that instant. The Psalms, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, the Psalms are after reflections and expansions on what was going on in David's soul during this time, what he was thinking about, all of the different emotions, all of the different thoughts that were in his head, giving us an inside picture into what happens when we sin, the guilt feelings, the being overwhelmed by the sin, and the desire and the deep need to realize God's, uh, God's forgiveness. And in Psalm 32, 5, we see something uh, also very, very clear here. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about, about these particular words that are used here and what they mean. We'll come back and do most of that later as we get into uh, Psalm 51. But the idea here of iniquity is simply to go astray, to go out of bounds. It's not, uh, the Hebrew word is avon, and it doesn't have a theological sense in the Old Testament. I mean, it does, but it's not like our word sin or iniquity You don't hear anybody at your office or anybody at the grocery store talking about sin or iniquity. 
That's not part of their everyday vocabulary. This is just an everyday word meaning to go out of bounds. And so uh, David is saying, I acknowledge my sin, my uh, error, my missing the mark to you, and my, uh, <clears throat> my error uh, that I went astray, and I confess, confess my transgressions, and that word has to do with rebellion. I will confess my rebelliousness, my rebellious actions to the Lord, and you forgave the uh, errors of my sin, of my missing the mark. To put it into more everyday language, away from some of the uh, um, theological connotations we're so used to having. I acknowledge my sin to you is the Hebrew word yada. It's interesting, you have two words here. You have yada, and I acknowledge my sin to you, and I will confess my transgressions. That is also pronounced the same, but they're spelled differently. So both words are yada, but they're different words, different spelling. The word here... I acknowledge my sin to you is a hifil. Now, I don't go into the grammar in Hebrew a lot. A lot of times it's not necessary. But a hifil is a stem that is used for a causative, to make something known. And so it has the, the root idea of the verb is to know something. And it comes to refer to something that is made known, Something, some information that is given to somebody else. Of course, when we confess sin, we're not telling God something he doesn't already know, but we are informing him. That's uh, one of the main ways the word is translated. And it also means to let someone know something. There are a lot of legalistic ideas that get wrapped up in the term confession. And I have tried to avoid that, and I go back to these confession psalms in the Old Testament, I have for 30 years, to use the synonyms because it makes more sense. It doesn't mean simply to name or identify a sin. It means to admit something. It is a courtroom term. When you go into a court of law, you are asked, how you plead. Did you do X, Y, or Z, or did you not? You either say, yes, I did it, or no, I did not. That is a confession, an acknowledgement of guilt or not. That's what it means to confess sin. And so we see this in these words. Yada is used in some other passages, and I just want to put some of these up on the screen so you can see how it is translated in other passages, and it gives you an idea of what this means. In Genesis 41.9, most of you are familiar with the story, uh, Joseph had been uh, arrested because of the he get, got framed by uh, <clears throat> Potiphar's wife claiming that he had tried to sexually assault her, and he had not, but she was jealous because he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't yield to her seduction. And so he is thrown in prison, and there he meets uh, the chief butler. He meets two people who are from the court of the pharaoh. And this is when the chief butler is brought out of jail, and he's brought before the pharaoh. And he says to the pharaoh, I make mention of my faults this day. Making mention is this word yada. I am telling you about my faults. 
I am making it known to you. That's all it means. There's not a sense of remorse or bargaining or anything like that. It is simply the conveyance of information. In 1 Samuel 16.3, when God is instructing Samuel to go to uh, Jesse, the family of Jesse, the father of David, to anoint David as the, uh, as the king... God tells him, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you will do. I will make known to you what to do. I will tell you what to do. That's the idea of, of the word there. It's the same word, same, uh, same stem, hyphial stem. I will cause you to know what you shall do. In Jeremiah 16.21, uh, God says to uh, Israel, therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. Same word, same stem, causing them to know. So what David is saying in Psalm 32, 5 is, I will cause you to know. I will tell you about my sin. Psalm 51, 6 uses this same phrase in the other psalm, confession psalm. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Same word, all in the hyphil stem. So when David says, I acknowledge my sin to you, he's saying, I am making my sin known to you. That's the idea. So when we confess sin, we're saying, Lord, I was arrogant. Lord, I lied. Lord, I cheated. Lord, I was angry. We're admitting to the sin that we committed. And then in the parallel line, in the synonymous line, he says, I confess my transgression. So the broader term in the first line is chatat, which is my sin. We'll talk about what that means later. Just a broad word for missing the mark. <clears throat> and then he says, I will confess and this is a word that sounds the same. It's yada, but instead of ending with an, an ayin, which is this funny-looking thing on the end over here, it ends with a hey here, which makes it a completely different word. And it has that idea in some contexts, means to praise. In other contexts, it means to confess. And one form of the word is the Hebrew word tada which means thanks. So it has a range of meaning, and it simply means to confess or admit or acknowledge. It's used in parallel with acknowledge. So that tells us what it means, what confess means. It means to acknowledge <coughs> or to admit sin. And then he goes on to say, I, I will confess my transgressions, my rebelliousness to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And this is the Hebrew word nasah, which is the common word that is most common word used for forgiveness. And it means to take away someone's guilt and punishment. And that refers to both the legal guilt of having uh, violated the law or transgressed the law or the commandment, and it has the idea of taking away the feelings of guilt. That's why it's a sin to have guilt feelings. 
Now, I remember when I was a young pastor and I was teaching on this, and somebody said, what's the difference between guilt and guilt feelings? See, unbelievers and baby believers just don't have a clue what this stuff means. Guilt has to do with an objective legal fact. You violated a command. If you were speeding, then you've got a ticket. You are objectively guilty. You may not feel guilty. If you have received a number of tickets, you may feel a little anger. You may just feel disgust with yourself. You may resent the fact that there are speed traps catching you. But you may not feel a whole lot of remorse, and you may not feel too bad about the fact that you were, you were caught in a, in a speed trap. So remorse is not necessarily part of the idea of guilt. Guilt is used in an objective sense. You broke the law, so you're guilty. But then there's that other aspect where you have guilt feelings, and that's when you have remorse, and that's when your conscience bothers you, and you're just afraid of what kind of uh, consequences you're going to face or what kind of punishment you're going to face. And there's a lot of people who have sensitive consciences, and they have guilt feelings all the time, and they haven't done anything. That's just the subjectivity of their sin nature. And as soon as somebody walks into a room of 30 people and says, you did it, they think, oh, I'm caught. And they haven't done a thing. But they just immediately, in their self-absorbed nature, assume that they did something and now they're caught. So that's a guilt feeling. Now, when we are forgiven by God, he takes away the guilt, the sin in that sense. That's not an issue anymore. It is removed from us as far as the east is from the rest. But if you are one of those with a crazy sin nature that likes to assume the blame for everything, then you're going to start second-guessing God afterwards and say, oh, God didn't really forgive me. Well, now you're committing another sin. Now you're saying, well, God didn't mean what he said. God lied to me. He said I was forgiven, but not really. I just can't believe he would do that. And so you're compounding sins now. Uh, God said you're forgiven. You confess sin. You're forgiven. Forget about it. God forgot about it. He has removed it. It's not an issue anymore. There may be consequences, but you're forgiven as far as God, God is concerned. And that's what David is saying here in Psalm 32.5. This same word for forgiveness is used, again, an example from Joseph, uh, where now this is at the end of Genesis. Jacob has just died, and now his brothers really have guilt feelings. He had forgiven them earlier, but now that Jacob isn't going to be around to protect them, now they're afraid that Joseph is going to come along and get his revenge from ha for having sold them into slavery earlier. See, they're like the guilt-ridden believer who thinks, oh, now God's really going to get me. He was just playing with me when he said I was forgiven before. So they come to Joseph. This is what actually what J Jacob told them to say. Uh, then you, he is, Jacob is speaking. He says, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil for you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
because they didn't really accept the forgiveness from before. So that's why he is disappointed in them. So David's response is he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned uses the most general word for sin used in the Old Testament. It is the word hatat, and it means simply to miss the mark. It is uh, a, a word that occurs some 580 times in the Old Testament and is the main word for sin, just like sin is the main word that we use to talk about sin. But I wanted to talk, think about this a little bit. For, for many of us, the word is familiar, but when we're talking to people who don't go to church and aren't saved, sin can be a very offensive word. Because in their minds, sin is something that is really, really big. Sin is something that is terribly obnoxious. They may be coming out of a background where, where they think of sin as something you do that may harm the planet. It, it may be something that you do to harm your family. It may be something on the level of extreme drug abuse or maybe sexual uh, sexual assault. It may be have to do with um, any number of different may, big, big, big sins in their mind, big actions in their mind. And so if you say that they're a sinner, they're offended. Most unbelievers have a pretty high view of themselves. They think they're basically good. And for you to call them a sinner is, is a real affrontery. It's very obnoxious. And you have to take your time and help them understand uh, what this, this means. And basic, the basic meaning of the word sin is just to miss the goal, to, uh, to go out of bounds, to miss the mark. It's used in a couple of interesting passages in a non uh, non-theological uh, sense. In Judges 20.16, we read, Among all this people were 700 select or choice men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. And that's the word chatat, and not miss. So it just means that. In fact, this last week, if you took the time, you went home. I went home Sunday afternoon sitting around, turning on the TV and was watching the uh, the game um, Sunday afternoon. And getting down to towards the end of the, of the game, there was about four minutes left in the game. And the Texans had the ball, and they're making a drive, and they're down 13 to 10. And it just looks like at least they're going to be able to get close enough to get a field goal, if not get a touchdown and pull it out. And just at that point, the um, front line, the offensive line failed. They sinned. (laughs) And then Deshaun Watson sinned. Because when um, when the Panthers took him down, he let go of the ball, and he fumbled, and they recovered. And that was pretty much, that was the end of the game. He sinned. Now, if you were to be at the game and say, oh, look at that. The offensive line sinned. Watson sinned. What do you think people would say? They'd think you'd lost your mind. But the biblical word was an everyday word for just missing the mark, for failing to meet the standard. 
So if your kid comes home and gets a 90 instead of 100 on a test, he sinned. Now, it's not a moral thing. See, the core meaning of chatat isn't something moral or something uh, ethical. It is simply that uh, they missed the mark. They failed to meet the standard. So we've all got a standard that God has given us, and it's the standard of his, of his own character. Now, here's another example of chatat uh, used in Isaiah 65, 20. Um, no longer will there be in it an infant. It's talking about the millennial kingdom. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought a curse. Now, that's the New American Standard, and it's translating chata as not reaching the age of 100. In your uh, King James Bible, it says uh, the one who is a sinner will not reach 100, and that is just a really bad translation. It's not talking about sin. It's not talking about failing to reach the mark of the age age of one of 100. It's used uh, by Sa- Saul when he's confessing to Samuel, but there is no, there, there's not going to be a commuting of the sentence. He's going to lose the kingdom. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, chatat is the noun, chatat is the verb, uh, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord. I've rebelled against the word of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I mean, he's just such a whiny boy. Uh, now, therefore, please pardon, and this is the word nasa again, the word for forgive, pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And, of course, Samuel says, no, not today, never again. First Samuel 3, 4, where we started talking about sin, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And that's the word hamartia, which is basically the equivalent of our word sin or the Old Testament word. It has that idea of missing the mark, failing to reach a goal. And so in 12.13, David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I have missed the mark. And Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. This is a different word. It's not nasaf or forgive. It's a synonym Uh, avar, which means to forgive, to take away, or to remove sin. And he, secondly, he tells him, you shall not die. He's commuted the death penalty. So I just want to cover this briefly, and then we'll close up. What's the relationship of Psalm 51 to David's confession in 2 Samuel 12? After David goes home that night, or maybe the next night or two, but while it's still fresh in his mind and he is so relieved that God has commuted the death penalty and God has forgiven him, as he is reflecting upon God's grace, reflecting upon his own uh, uh, feelings of despair and emotion, he expands on what took place and gives us a model in his in this psalm, Psalm 51, uh, expanding on the idea of confession. And so we'll come back next time. I didn't think I would make it, but I gave it a try, that David will start next time with Psalm 51, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in 
to Bathsheba. It's an interesting play on words. The same verb is used in the Hebrew for Nathan went to him and after he had, in the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's bad English, but it's after he had, he went into Bathsheba. So there's a play on words there. And, uh, and then this is where we will get into Psalm 51 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that when we admit our sin to you, that you are not looking for remorse, you're not looking for bargaining. You simply want us to come back to you, to admit that we have sinned against you, what the sin is, and you instantly forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the purpose isn't just to confess sin. The purpose is to be restored to that intimate union with you, that intimate rapport with you, so that we may grow and mature as believers. It takes time and maturity to come to understand that. Uh, We all know that. But that's the goal, is to remain in fellowship, to remain in that partnership, enjoying that fellowship, that dependence upon you as we walk with you in this life. Thank you for your grace, your goodness to us, that time and time again we rebel against you, we express contempt toward you, and yet every time we come back and admit our sin, you welcome us, you throw your arms around us, you forgive us, and we are restored. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.